Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, so I'm Clara Fernandez. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Gambit, and I have the pleasure to introduce you to uh, Francisco Ricardo, uh, who is a media and contemporary art theorist. Uh, he not only teaches uh, courses of digital media theory at uh, the Rhode Island School of Design, uh, but he's also the He's also a research associate at the University Professors Program and a co-director of the Digital Video Research Ar Archive at Boston University. Um, uh, his research examines historical, conceptual, and computational intersections between contemporary art and architecture on the one hand and new media art and literature on the other. Um, so his, some of his recent publications uh, include the books uh, Cyber, Cyberculture and New Media and Literary Art in Digital Performance. So without further ado, here's Francisco. Thank you. I'm going to slide over here and put my clock over here. It tends to be a longer talk, so I will, um, I'll just sit momentarily and then maybe I'll walk around or something. So thank you, Clara. Um, I mean, I, I can't tell you how uh, delighted I am that you can join me here in this. Um, you know, as somebody who for 25 years has lived five minutes away from campus and who has uh, participated in several events here over the years and who was a sort of graduate student at Harvard who was kind of very happy and I have to say admittedly somewhat envious of MIT's tradition of this like, progressive media studies that was as humanistic on the one hand as it was technological on the other. I'm also happy because I've been sort of following the, the work of CMS since its first, um, I guess, in the, the first class around the year 2000 and the writing program since the late 80s when I first uh, encountered and I think was uh, centrally influenced by the work of uh, Ed Barrett, who was subsequently kind enough to sit on my doctoral committee 11 years ago. Um, so I'm also uh, very grateful to my colleagues, Clara, and certainly Nick, who's not here, but very grateful, and so, uh, William very much, who's here, not here, obviously, as well as Jim Parody for the invitation. But I mentioned these friends, I think, in particular because um, we have essentially kind of in one form or another been engaging in one long conversation exploring uh, common themes and common questions uh, about new media art, uh, new media-based art, new media-based uh, literature, etc., relating particularly to uh, its present uh, condition of expansion uh, and how several fields of study um, connect with the sort of spirit and the rigor of what I think um, we both might imagine comparative means through and, and through. Now, as Clara points out, I teach in a kind of strongly conceptual digital media department at, at an art school, um, and so my own contribution to this discussion, I think, and, and the basis for my own uh, writing, teaching, and scholarship is based on looking at different traditions, as we'll see today, methods, materials, and media from the visual arts and architecture with some degree of computational concern. And rather than seeing these as historical objects alone, particularly the humanities, instead I would ask about the extent to which they point to and support contemporary theory and expressive work in new media going forward. Now, you know, since the architecture and the visual arts um, embody kind of a, a vast and very complex set of traditions, uh, this terrain is both, I think, fertile and quite enormous to cover. So I look for uh, points on the horizon that can open out to questions of method and possibly to contemporary media studies 
uh, as a whole. Today, I think I can perhaps make an attempt to argue for and provide perhaps an inappropriately cursory and quick overview of some changes in art and architecture, which I think could potentially inform our view of media studies as an aesthetic project that represents uh, both major change but also conceptual uh, continuity. Um, so I think in the space of uh, time available today, and this is a big talk, I hope you will indulge and definitely forgive the accelerated pace of this discussion. Uh, I mean, certainly in my work, the, the hardest part of my task is, is always uh, to select a sample of material from the abundance of works of arguments of evidence in these, in these fields. So uh, a view of sculpture and a view of architecture from about the end of the 19th century to today even though I will go very quickly over it, I think is necessarily uh, a piece of the, of the story. So I think it can suffice to bring us to one of the conceptual views that I'd like to put forward of contemporary and electronic art uh, and to reach maybe some conclusions. Um, incongruously enough, I, I think certainly one of the, one of the first uh, sort of uh, discussions in this comes from not someone who's a media theorist, but fundamentally a, a Russian abstract painter, E.L. Lizitsky, who uh, in 1926, writing about his own work, um, was uh, sort of putting forward what were, in, in his own ways, his own sort of futurist ambitions, fundamentally saying that the idea is that as correspondence, as our needs to fundamentally uh, communicate further and further, grow um, the existing media to accommodate communications are exhausted. And those media then are supplanted by new media that are less material. So he says, uh, an example, as correspondence grows, the number of letters increases, the amount of paper written on and material used up swells, then the telephone call relieves the strain, then comes further growth in the communications network and an increase in the volume of communications, then radio eases that burden. So the amount of material used, he says, is decreasing. We are dematerializing, and cumbersome masses of material are being supplanted by released energies. That is the sign of our time, which I think for 1926 is uh, rather forward-looking. And in a way, if we could be admitted to the idea of a kind of a, a theorem or even a law, we might sort of say that what Lisitsky is pointing to is the possibility of these sort of two trends that are coming. One of which is that, that as the flow of data increases over time, the materiality of the new media that uh, are able to convey and support this increased flow, the materiality of the medium tends to also diminish. Perhaps another way of sort of saying is that something about uh, maybe our, our, our need for uh, working through expressive media means that over time they become somewhat less mass-related and at the same time as they do so, the products of creative expression become more projected and potentially more fragmented. And um, more than as a theorist, certainly um, Lisitsky's own thinking about this, you know, in many of his compositions, show a, a whole prophecy of lots of different themes that later came about in sort of postmodern aesthetics. The cutting through, the idea of multi-axial planarity that we see here, the refusal of gravity, the escape from a center, which I think is the central theme that I'd like to sort of focus on today, and sort of a new geometric order of fragmentation. So this talk, I think I'll try to uh, move quickly, 
uh, I have entirely too much material, as I said, but I would like to just break it down into sort of three quick sections, one of which relates to an overview, as it were, of sculptural and filmic new media, uh, beginning with late 19th century sculpture. Then I'd like to do the same, if possible, for architecture. And lastly, for sort of locative and more electronic versions of new media, art and architecture, to see whether there's a common trend that we could sort of agree on, see what you think uh, kind of works or doesn't work in this. So uh, within this uh, sort of field that we might call sculptural or filmic new media, certainly in the, by the 19th century, all sculpture is fundamentally purely sculptural. It's very mass-related. There's really very little in the way of anything filmic or electronic at that point. And um, however, as new media begin to become absorbed into it, fundamentally there are three sort of subtrends that we can almost observe. One of which is that the, the mass, as it begins to sort of expand from work, begins to imply a notion of uh, motion itself. So that volumetric sculpture, which implies sort of stasis and monumentality, begins to become replaced by sort of projective sculpture, which implies motion. And this is something that blossoms in the 20th century. Another sort of formal uh, observation is that there's a kind of depth compression. So at the one hand, while we have these objects that begin to become as, as sculptural objects and works and trends somewhat um, projected, at the same time we sort of see a compression in our understanding and our view and our experience of depth within them. This per per becomes especially, uh, I think, prevalent in new media art when it becomes more filmic and more photographic, perhaps for, for, for the reason that it is a 2D synthesis, uh, 2D medium. Uh, process medium synthesis is another trend that I'll sort of show several times here. And by this I mean the idea that unlike before, whereas the process itself was for the creation of a work quite separate, as a separate moment of the creation of the work, different from the moment in which the work is itself produced and promoted and put out for exhibition and reception, now, uh, increasingly, the process and the medium become increasingly co-synchronously realized to the degree that, that they're actually uh, happening in a simultaneous way. So certainly, I, I would certainly say without with, uh, staying too far back that it's, I think we can all agree from our own experience of uh, being in museums and looking at public art that the tradition sort of of monumental sculpture is fundamentally one which from a very far back period in history until about the 19th century fundamentally stands in a kind of um, need to project and to um, give us a sense of expressed permanence and virtue. And one of the ways it does this through, you know, uh, through the sculptural medium is by using massive amounts of volume and uh, works of this nature really tend to tell very little of a story. However, um, sculpture is too durable a medium to be left to allegorical symbol alone. And over time, particularly with the rise of Romanticism, but also with the Enlightenment earlier, a lot of 19th century sculpture, um, particularly in France, begins to acquire a sense of narrative, but very decisively detailed sense of narrative that we see sort of in, in the works, um, certainly uh, uh, Gotthold Lessing over here, um, uh, we see the, the Laoquan, the as well as on the right, uh, this is La, La Marseillaise from the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Now, what happens in these, as, as a lot of art historians have noted, is that the degree to which we have uh, greater specificity of detail, we seem to have almost a sort of a rotation around the center where the story begins perhaps in a left portion of the, uh, or a right portion of 
a lateral portion, as it were, of the sculpture, and then it begins to sort of move around. But you notice that the profusion of detail in sculpture such as this uh, makes it possible to believe that it's not long until such time as we would possibly, you know, uh, exhaust the possibilities of this medium as a, as a narrative device. So not surprisingly, therefore, one of the discoveries um, that, that one, one can make in the rise of new sort of sculpture is that the idea that the amount of detail that is provided in the sculpted object begins to diminish, while at the same time the amount of projected material from the, from the center of the sculpture itself, the sculptural work begins to increase. And that would be something that we can see here, for instance, in the form of wings and in the form of legs and arms, etc. So that as projected motion begins to sort of take hold, as a, as a kind of statement in the practice of sculpture, we begin to also think that motion itself follows a kind of temporal metabolism, as it were. So that, for instance, in, in the case of the left sculpture, we might imagine that the volume projection contrast here shows us um, uh, a kind of motion which itself is happening rather very slowly. Whereas on the right, um, which is in Vigeland's Park, one of the many sculptures of Vigeland, and uh, in Oslo, we see lots of, and this is a massive sculpture, it's not small at all, we see a child sort of playing with arms, hair, legs, etc., in which the implication is rather not of slowness or uh, slow, uh, but rather accelerated motion. Now, of course, you know, one would know that being an intellectual period in the 20th century, many artists would take notice of this on some level or another, and they would want to experiment with notions of volume with mass and projection. So that, for example, this becomes very interesting to Julio Gonzalez, very interesting to Giacometti, to Picasso, in whose works we begin to see exactly the same thing, works that begin to acquire less and less uh, mass, more and more projection, and they begin to look more like uh, sort of technological products themselves rather than anything sort of conforming to the aesthetic standards of their day. Even when we have something what we could call roughly figurative sculpture, we nonetheless see in works like Giacometti the degree to which then the sculpture itself has sort of given up the idea of volume for projection and to underscore the idea of motion. But since motion is so interesting, we can't leave that alone to just merely the idea of projection. In fact, there's a whole range of mechanisms that sculpture sort of acquires in order to really put this into its lexicon one of which is the mechanisms of the pendulum, extremely interesting to the surrealists. The pendulum comes back again and again in sort of the 20th century sculpture, and um, it is really not only just a, really a kind of a monument to motion, but ultimately to sort of the idea that in itself what's ultimately missing in the work is the massive center that we were seeing not long ago. So that with the adoption of new materials, even into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we have many uh, sculptors, for instance, like uh, Joel Shapiro, uh, David Smith, who we see here, uh, adopt materials which are uh, uh, sort of uh, dealt with in a sort of plastic art sort of way to give us the sense of motion and, once again, to refute the notion of centrality of volume. It doesn't have to be a very hardened material. Here we see Bourgeois, Louis Bourgeois, The Blind Leading the Blind, and fundamentally it's basically painted wood construction, which without a center once again appears very much through its projective insinuations to be in uh, motion, um, in addition to certainly many of the abstract and surrealist experiments. There are very ongoing sort of figurative ones. We, here we see a, you know, the very famous spiders of Louis Bourgeois, of which several were built in enormous structures. They are once again. And nonetheless, we see in other works as well, 
where even when there is appearances of mass in one form or another, the mass appears to sort of be either shooting out, projecting out, moving out in one form or another. It's basically uh, that motion is the idea of perceptual triggers to imply motion. Another way of doing this, not through a pendulum, for example, is in the work of, like, uh, recent work of Frank Stella, not, not someone we might associate with this kind of work, for example. But here we can clearly see that it's a different mechanism for motion that's being employed, and that would be that of the helical spherix, sphere. And so what's happening here is there's a clearly a use of curvature not to emphasize the center, but in many ways actually almost to emphasize an escape from the center, a kind of unwinding. Now, I mentioned earlier that there was a kind of turn to, at some point, the idea of motion, which um, takes on a kind of uh, new vocabulary in the form of what we might call depth compression. One of which is one of the ways in which this is done by using light structure, uh, filmic, and photographic media as embedded within and completely integrated with and fused into the sculptural object so that works like such as this here, which is Hangman by Bruce Nauman, actually is essentially nothing but neon tubing on metal monolith. And it actually has a two-state two state, um, appearance, so that it fundamentally looks like it's in one form and then another very quickly. But there's really no sense, while we have motion, there's really no sense at all of, of really of depth. Not to say, on the other hand, that, that depth has completely disappeared, one, one of the things we want uh, is to sort of play with this dynamic rather than necessarily make a statement that it has been completely sort of obliterated for a rather simplistic set of practices, because that's in fact not the case. But, um, but that trend itself it appears to us as a kind of didactic, a di- dialectic where I think what we could look at is work such as this, where we have depth without the implied motion, where, for example, um, I fundamentally, I'm more interested, interested in, uh, in Cornelia Parker's subconscious of a monument, soil removed from the underneath the leaning of Tower of Pisa to prevent it from falling. And so when we think about the particular origins of that, where that soil comes from and how it's actually been used in this rather suspended template, it nonetheless gives us this, the idea that there's a space of possibilities without nonetheless uh, really any sense of central motion uh, or central mass in the, in the center. Cornelia Parker has used this in several um, uh, configurations, one of which is uh, a, a great work which we um, call Dark Matter, an exploded view which was shown at the Tate Modern. Here's an extreme case of replacing volume with projected insinuation of motion in which she basically had gotten permission to have a number of British soldiers take uh, a, a, a um, shed and put explosives in it and basically blow it up. All the pieces were later collected and reconfigured back to this sort of shed, which then was hung in this, what you can see, can only be called a very complicated template. But this particular sus- level of suspension shows us that the work in itself, uh, not only does it not have a center, it doesn't even have a determinate state of being because it's neither the shed nor the explosion, but it's something in between, sort of an in-between space, as it were. Now, it's not to say that the center has completely disappeared. There's lots of other things that have also disappeared as well in sculpture. For instance, sort of the, you know, we could say that volume itself in the work of people like Carl Andre has completely disappeared down to a two-dimensional level. And in some cases, for example, we might say like with Christo and Jean-Claude, we might even say that the whole question of volume is itself an an interrogative paradox. Because uh, 
the practice, of course, of Christian Jean-Claude is to use um, existing volume, whether it be the Reichstag or the Pont Neuf in Paris or in other structures, perhaps even islands, um, whose volume is already a given, and to wrap it and to basically bring us head-to-head uh, -head with the idea of where the volume really essentially and the work essentially uh, are part of the same idea because the volume already was appropriated by a prior existing and historically significant object. Now, if you like, there's also cases of spatiality with attenuated volume or questionable volume, one of which uh, examples comes from Robert Smithson, who unfortunately died very young in his life, but who examined land art, perhaps maybe might even be considered the pioneer of land art, looking at the idea of you know, uh, overlapping shades of art itself, of, of uh, volume itself, in the service of the art form, but questioning it. This was the very last set of pieces that he did where he was no longer, um, where he was not actually in, in a site itself. Uh, he realized that uh, as he turned away from this work that he was being rather too, as he called it, Duchampian. He didn't appreciate the idea that something could allude to something without the fundamental materiality at hand, from which then he turned and created works um, that, like the spiral jetty. Now, um, one of the ideas of extrusion that I think is also very interesting in 20th century sculpture is the idea of that it, um, it's quite amenable to other forms of kinetic operation. And so we can see here, we, you know, it's, it's, it's an insinuation. It's not necessarily something that happens. And for this reason, I bring you two different examples, for example, uh, of one of which is a work that is very designed for motion, namely Jean Tangle on the right, um, and another for Charles Long on the left, which is not a moving work whatsoever. But it would be almost difficult to imagine uh, making an argument in which, for material reasons, one, they, one would move and one wouldn't. In fact, they both do as a result of their insinuation uh, of, of this ex sort of light extrusion appear to be works that can be very kinetic in character. Now, uh, certainly, we've seen a whole tradition in the 20th century with, with uh, Alexander Calder and others who have a very great interest in certainly kineticizing the work of art. But um, I think that more interesting, for example, is once again uh, our, the sort of the, the engagement with art, which is neither uh, static nor moving, but in, in a sort of a perhaps indeterminate condition of being for both. One of my favorite artists, certainly, for example, and this is the constructivist uh, Nam Gabo, whose own sculptural experiments kind of present to us the idea that there's a kind of wholeness to the work uh, visible from certain uh, positions. But as we sort of begin to get closer to it, what appears to be a sort of unitary spire begins to show us that, in fact, there's really very little in the way of the center itself. And the creation is no longer entirely separate from the work itself, which is essentially a work of weaving uh, a series of new materials. There was nothing here that was used that was not uh, some sort of polymer or new metal. So that um, perhaps this is a, probably a good place to turn to the third part of the discussion there about this idea of a process medium synthesis. Fundamentally, we do know that with, uh, with a lot of sculpture and with a lot of painting and traditional arts, the idea is very much that uh, of the sort of the von Neumann lens, where in which something is created in one context and presented, as I mentioned earlier, in a completely different context. Now, uh, it wasn't um, because new materials made the possibility to put process and medium together that artists began to turn to this. In fact, it was actually more a critical turn away from what they felt was the suffocating influence of commercial usurpation of work that this particular formula, 
which we have taken to mean the basis for a lot of finished product, was itself turned on its ear. And we began to see works in which the creation of the work, um, what the work was itself giving us, and the way in which the work actually did it. In other words, the product itself and the process itself, through its singular medium, were one and the same experience. And sometimes it was uh, through, with great pains that artists went to uh, you know, put themselves to some industry to try and make the case in which uh, this could be done in the most simplistic manner possible. One of the unsung heroes of this is William Anastasi, whose work, even going back to the 1960s, basically fundamentally shows you a work that kind of claims itself as what it's showing you, and fundamentally what one is looking at is what is, in many ways, what is doing the looking. Um, and in more kinetic and somewhat more new media ways, this has gone into, I think, areas that haven't received, I think, sufficient attention. For instance, the work of Roxy Payne. Here we see one of his many skumac, the automatic sculpture makers, in which what we have is basically an extruding system through an injection molding uh, of polyethylene, which itself has also got a built-in cooler, a timer, and some electronics, a stainless steel, and a timed conveyor belt. So that fundamentally what, what one might imagine happens is in fact what does happen, which is that the polyethylene is heated and uh, dropped into, um, over a period of eight hours, into one singular spot, which then once it cools, uh, allows the conveyor belt to be notified to move into a new space and a new work is actually created. So in fact, it's the process and medium in the same synthesis. And I'm bringing up this example because I'm saying that fundamentally we don't need super lots of digital equipment to sort of do this. There's been um, fundamentally a lot of uh, interest in, on behalf of many uh, um, artists who've been interested in looking at new media as a kind of critical object to... Uh, interrogate, if you like, to criticize, to have us look again. In fact, if you like, maybe even to deconstruct the very act of creation, which is, of course, their holy grail. Now, the process medium synthesis, again, can sort of be seen in lots of different art, um, sculpture in which, fundamentally, we have uh, a physical component and a sort of photographic or filmic component, as we see here in the work of Tony Arsler. Now, what happens here is that the inversion is clear in the sense that the subjectivity that's actually in front of the work is itself turned back on itself because when we look at his work the way that we might look at Mona Hatoum's work, we see work that is actually looking back at us. Um, and that's a rather uncanny feeling if one has been with, uh, in some of these sort of outsized experiences. Um, and I think there's nothing more... Um, perhaps rigorous in, in my experience, at least, than the work of, of Andrew Newman, whose um, unification okay, of sort of the electronic, the kinetic, the visual in terms of photographic or filmic, and the mechanical uh, come down to the same work uh, whose recursive self-referentiality, I think, is really the ultimate statement about where it is that we actually are, because we're actually holding the work in, in several different perspectives at the same time. And the work itself is completely un... This is uh, his series of industrial wall panels, all of which are completely different, uh, each of which is um, uh, sort of looking at something very cl up close or far away. The screw that we see here, for example, is in one of these panels, and the lower left has show, uh, shown in extremely high close-up. So the materiality is also brought to us, as well as the sort of the idea of the conceptual creation. So that's actually not too bad. Now, if you don't mind, I'll now turn to the second part of the conversation, 
about architectural projection itself. We could go on with the others, but I'm trying to move quickly so we don't stay here all night. And um, now, to the degree that I sort of mentioned that there were three sort of subtrends in new media uh, sculpture or sculpture leading up to new media sculpture, I'd like to sort of also point out three potential subtrends that occur in what we might call the uh, trend of uh, toward architectural projection architecture from the sort of idea of a site or a center out into something that is itself projected away from that center. So not surprisingly, as we saw with earlier sculpture, there is an architectural projection, yes, uh, an almost predictable turn away from the idea of, more, um, of monument and ornament, a turn from sort of also a historical narrative which has been embedded in architecture for many years and many traditions, away towards something that we could call closer to formulaic or algorithmic design. And finally, from again, the idea of sort of the, the centralized structure to something that is itself highly projective. Um, not surprisingly, uh, this is something that is not only seen as a trend in uh, architecture, but even in urbanism itself as a whole. Rem Kohlhaas, you know, some 20-something years ago, says that the emerging forms of architecture in the city today all seem to lead to an unavoidable fragmentation of the city, a displacement of the center of gravity, of urban dynamics from the city center to the urban periphery and a remarkable ingenuity in avoiding urbanistic rules. Now, we see this at the level of the sort of the urban planning concept, but we certainly also see this even more closely in the case of very existing, of re very real and individual existing structures. Because it's really not that long ago that architecture itself was centered on, uh, and we, we, we were almost alive at that time, uh, sort of reflected a series of very powerful references to beauty, cultural accomplishment, etc. The building and the site were sort of organized as a kind of reference system. Whether it was as Baroque or the Beaux-Arts um, period, we definitely see that up until the end of the Gothic Revival, which we would point out again happened at the end of the 19th century, that there were a series that a series of sort of ethical notions were held up and considered the sort of holy grail of architectural design. In this country, um, uh, we took very seriously the work of John Ruskin, whose Seven Lamps of Architecture articulated seven very clear ethical concepts for how we are to design. And these um, really led directly to the arts and crafts movement that was so very influential throughout. It was really not until around the, the end of the 19th century, the 1890s, up until about the 1920s when he passed away, that Lewis Sullivan was, could be seen as the real person who would turn away from something like this. And that, um, that, that particular turn, as revolutionary as it was, was never seen to be revolutionary because fundamentally what, what Lewis Sullivan uh, basically did was to reduce the ornament that would have jutted from the concept of sort of, say, for instance, battlements or, or other uh, ornamented uh, sort of uh, extras and excesses for a building down to the idea of a cube that was fundamentally very uh, functional while nonetheless retaining the idea that, there, that a building could have three, for example, sections and that these sections themselves could have sufficient ornament to keep its foot just close enough to the prior generation that this, that this sort of tradition could be extended outward. And so, not surprisingly, uh, certainly through his student Frank Lloyd Wright and lot, lots of other um, sort of traditions, something happens in the 20th century, even for people who were not um, at all influenced by Louis Sullivan, like certainly, uh, for example, um, Walter Gropius in the Bauhaus. Um, there is a sort of very clear uh, and very concise interest in the notion of uh, removing ornament from structure 
creating structure that who and whose form basically follows function, and whose fundamental um, role in our being is as a box. Um, and this basically continues until about the 1960s, when we have in the form of a return to something that's very formulaic, namely linguistic studies, people like Peter Eisenman, who turn to, and quite explicitly saying this even in his own, for instance, um, doctoral dissertation, The Formal Basis of Architecture, in 1963, uh, turns to the work of Fernand, uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, uh, whose uh, notes he read very carefully, we see here on the left, um, and who used these notes to sort of imagine the possibility of a sort of a permuted architecture which could behave like a sort of grammar. In this case, the box has begun to sort of, uh, the ornament certainly is all completely gone. It's completely not, to, not seen as having uh, any sort of expressive value any longer. But uh, moreover, the modes of construction are themselves now giving way to an algorithmic design. These, this is one of his uh, six houses, house one through house six, which were explicitly designed in conformity with Saussurean principles of grammar. Um, certainly, to be sure, we see that um, with Archigram and lots of other schools that came around the 1960s and 70s, that sort of the turn to linguistic design became so important that uh, work began to be looked upon as sort of a step and repeat exercise. But in the process of this sort of happening, we do observe something, which is that in a very short period of time, the box has all but certainly disappeared, and the uh, repeatability of grammatical design that uh, is afforded by linguistic structure shows us, as in the case of Archigram, which was ever so, of course, uh, influential, uh, works which have really very little in the way of the center, and they begin to extend outward and outward. Now, there are many examples of this. You can think of, I can only just imagine, for instance, here, I like the idea of people who are unsung heroes. Why pick on the, why pick on the big guys? Take the, take, the, take the less obvious examples as well. This is the Japanese architect, uh, Toyo Ito, whose own interest in this has basically led him to uh, sort of articulate a belief in architecture that architectural structure has, is essentially built for two, two realities, right? One in which the world uh, of the body lives and one in which the world of the senses itself lives. And so he, what he's really worked for is the design ethic of a kind of architecture in which the space itself can meet both ends. And to this end, one of the things that he does is he defeats the idea of the center, either by creating empty centers or by um, following the, the work of, like, for example, Rowan Slutsky, who talked about literal and phenomenal transparency in the 1950s, very influential uh, work, to create a s buildings that we can sort of almost look through. Now we can look through them as a result of new materials and glass, etc., or we can actually look through them by completely separating everything that surrounds the building by cover. And again, not surprisingly, the fact that the building begins to look like, like a sort of a formulaic permutation begins to take the interest of lots of students and new scholars in sort of what we might call perhaps the sort of the avant-garde wing of architecture. Things begin, as it were, to um, become uh, exercises that look almost more like applied math tessellations than, than actual structures that we are familiar with. Now, I, you know, because of time limitations, I don't have time to sort of go into too many of the critiques of this, but the central critique around this kind of thing has always been 
that it is highly unnatural, that nature just doesn't look like this. Whereas fundamentally, what, what's interesting about this is what many ar architects have fundamentally done, and we could say this with a lot of many conceptual artists, is that they've used natural processes to inform the design of their work. So, for example, here we see the idea of a tree and how a tree itself sort of branches out. And, of course, the metaphor of a tree has been very useful for linguistics, as we know, from parse grammars, etc., to actually create entirely new structures, all of which begin to uh, make, once again, a return for us to the theme of projection. Um, many of these different schools have, been, have had interesting names like digital tectonics, the idea that things are built on top of other things and that the, the process of design itself is, is, is its very own sort of aesthetic. But it's pretty clear that what is going through here is that as we continue to see uh, an expansion of work uh, in combinatorial possibilities and variations, again, the mass and the volume begin to fundamentally disappear. And it isn't just the mass and the volume that disappears, there's lots of other things that structurally are seen to go away. One of which is, for instance, the idea of a ceiling or a roof. And that sort of tends to go away. And other things that tend to go away in, in the sort of the endless drive to sort of being uh, topolo topology by symmetry, as it were, is the very notion even of an axial reference system. This has been very interesting to uh, Second Life uh, architecture as well. So the end result is always seemingly a series of permutations of basic form, and we now have any number of pieces of software out there, some of which are incredibly sophisticated for actually doing this. We have at the top schools um, designed by Algo Texture, for example, which is Constantis Tercidius is teaching this at the grad school of design. So it's really an entirely new sort of way of teaching. But perhaps is it new? I mean, Arata Izozaki basically pointed this out as the possibility of a projection against the center, architecture, once again, that would just, in this case, um, um, move away from anything that was central, anything that was box-like. And it's hard to imagine, really, fundamentally, a structure that would be more different than the one that we see here, the Clusters in the Air project that was, uh, not surprisingly, never built in New York City, was a housing project designed to use up as little room as possible at the bottom, but use up maximal air rights at the top. One can only imagine what this would have meant um, after 9-11. Um, but even today, I mean, sort of fundamentally, there are many design uh, competitions that are being won. For instance, a very recent one for the Museum of the Second World War the, um, in, in Poland has now been given to the studio architectonische Quadrat, which show us uh, a work whose fundamental center is actually not over the earth at all. It's actually mostly under the ground. So that there's a, there's a, there's a need to sort of incorporate uh, sort of geometric formalism at the level of sort of separation away from a center. And as I say, you know, perhaps the second argument, uh, in addition to uh, sort of the, the, the critique of nature or of these things being sort of anti-natural, is another critique, which is that perhaps these, these, these designs and this kind of work is sort of ahistorical. really doesn't really look back. Uh, Prince Charles, uh, uh, Prince of Wales, has been very vociferous, for instance, for 20 years in presenting uh, in lots of different venues, including the Royal Institute of British Architects, about why it is that this kind of architecture really uh, fails, and it's fundamentally always an argument, one form or another, that it's not natural. And not surprisingly, we see this in the work 
of many, uh, many, as we could say, sort of conservative critics who feel the same way. Here, for instance, without even having to go into the book, one can actually see it just from the cover. It's Peter Collins's uh, Changing Ideals in Architecture. And I emphasize the front of the cover so that you can actually see that what he's actually doing here is he's giving us uh, sort of a, in the background, you know, as it were, sort of representing a sort of a symbolic view of history that we uh, find venerable, uh, organic, and worthy of uh, retaining a Parisian a, a Baroque apartment, in the front of which is a very rectilinear new material structure, which seems alien, out of touch with its environment, and in many ways almost kind of coming out to reach and grab things, and doesn't seem to have any kind of notion of a center, etc. So these arguments are sort of always follow this. Uh, another example is, uh, as, as we've been voted one of the sort of top, uh, the worst, t- ten worst buildings in the United States and in the world itself has been the so-called the belligerent monolith of City Hall. And, uh, you know, I particularly like this example because, again, if one follows the critiques of this sort of thing, what we see is that it is the design that is always the crux of the uh, accusations. Whereas no one actually thinks, which in new media is something that we think out of very much, uh, which is what is it about the materials that actually might be wrong about this? Well, perhaps it's a very volumetric and central mass, and if we actually did the exact same thing with a different material, something that would be more postmodern, something lighter, etc., that might work. For instance, you know, almost fundamentally the same thematic structure is now seen as the guys at the library at San Diego, and we wouldn't say that that structure ha- uh, accords the same sort of or receives the same sort of negative sentiment, but it works in almost the exact same way. So materiality is very important to understand the fact that, you know, fundamentally it gives us a sense that the center is something we just sort of need to, for aesthetic reasons, perhaps for some other historical reason, turn away from at this time. And even just to go back, not to sort of, uh, you know, beat it, flog the horse too many times, even if we were to go back to prior materials, for example, the idea of the city hall, you know, using brutalist um, techniques of exposed cement, we can sort of a concrete. We can sort of see that that actually works as long as there is a sufficient sort of a need or, or um, uh, shown a need can be shown that projection is an aesthetic that can be made feasible in the overall structure of a plan. And this isn't new. Perhaps one of the things that we very much like about the Prairie style, for instance, and the work of, Will, um, of Frank Lloyd Wright, is that the sense that not only did things expand from the center outward, but they even expanded upward with the Johnson Wax Building's interior here, clearly shows what can only be called a kind of upward flow, and the physical joints themselves somewhat disappear. So we like the idea of the building seeming light and sort of disappearing. And one could go on with this, but again, in the interest of time, I'd, if you don't mind, I'll just turn now to what I think are potentially similar trends in electronic and new media art. Now, um, not surprisingly, I would have more to say about this than, than uh, other uh, kinds of um, sort of uh, humanistic fields of study. But what I'd like to just sort of immediately say with the works that I'm about to show is that um, I think that uh, part of what is happening in electronic and new media art is really very much amenable to the study of these kinds of the kinds of methodological studies that we've sort of seen. The idea of an escape from the center, the process medium synthesis, depth compression, etc. But fundamentally, this also opens up to questions about what the methodological possibilities are for studying new media art or literature. 
And I think that maybe one of the things we could sort of say is rather than someone, as I think I've seen, and maybe we all have some degree of sort of naive uh, attempts to define the bottom, the top, the beginning and the end of this uh, sort of phenomenon, which after all is still continually evolving, is to sort of just point out what some of the defining characteristics of it are at this time. Uh, one of which is, like, and this includes, by the way, locative media art, from which I think I've seen like now three new books, uh, and none of which I would say are, is, is really in any sense really comprehensive because of, of the continuous sort of evolving practice. But uh, I, at the risk of maybe being a little bit too, um, perhaps too, too metaphysical or too sort of abstract, I would also say that you know, one of the things that happens with a lot of architecture and with a lot of sculpture is that there's a reach for a phenomenological encounter. We're sort of brought into the work, not just to appreciate its beauty, but to use it in some fashion. And that our perspective and our position within the work matters. Uh, it's designed for that in mind. And electronic and new media art is, I would argue, uh, particularly uh, sensitive to this. As a result of which, uh, we can sort of say that uh, it has certain characteristics that really speak to that. One of which, as I say here, is that it's sort of it's about really a, a sort of an experiential encounter, about through or or with a given or a built environment. Um, it does convey a kind of narrative structure, or it seems to imply one that's in, uh, sort of inscribed into something like real and virtual space. I avoid too much discussion of real and virtual space because everybody throws those terms around and we'd like to we'd like generate some new ideas and not just keep using the same terms everybody else does. Um, the, the, I would say that the projection into space does actually equal compression in time, as we'll see in some examples, uh, something to bring up. Uh, I would say also that it's actually built on sculpture, on architecture, and even a kind of performance as well. It does actually rely on that. The process medium synthesis, you, you see... Uh, what you think, but I do think that the escape from sort of the center is is very much sort of traced by this sort of historical progression, as new as the field is, from this sort of centric notion of screen-based art, installation or performance art, and finally out there in the real world, located and distributed art, you know, to a sort of a distributed or a projective sense. I would say, therefore, that because it's a very phenomenological kind of expression and it, it does require that sort of engagement, it's probably naive to sort of say that it's a kind of a simple case of cartography. It's actually more of maybe these kinds of works are sort of maybe meaning-finding um, uh, over architectural surfaces. And by meaning-finding, we'll see several examples of this, which I think uh, are to some degree somewhat formal, somewhat personal, and in some cases quite, I think, uh, affective and transformational. Um, as a result, in order to get inside, one really sort of has to get into discussions about what it is that a subjective position is, what personal memory might be, what real-time experiences. Um, you know, I mean, I teach at an art school, so it's not a problem discussing this, but if I were certainly going to discuss this with architects, it might be a more problematic issue, unless they were European architects. Um, uh, let's see, there's also this idea of an overlay of worlds, virtual and factual, fictive, individual, collective world, and we sort of see that idea. And I can go on, but let me, uh, let me just also say that I think, personally, that the best methodology... Uh, or the best methodologies to study a lot of this is are actually literary methodologies. Uh, the last book that I published, uh, Literary Art and Digital Performance, had the word literary for a reason. You know, as much as I love um, phenomenology and as much as I love art history and as much as I love the visual, I still fundamentally re see these works as works that we read that works that we write about and inscribing on over certain surfaces even something to recall personal experience I think is a very powerful way and I don't see any exhaustion of that methodology anywhere uh, on the horizon. 
Now, uh, one thing I would quickly say, this is probably something familiar to some people here, but um, this here is um, the, the G-Speak system. Now, I'll turn quickly to some of the things I'd like to say about this. The G-Speak system, which is perhaps familiar to some of you, and if I, let me see, let me go back here and see if this work runs for, ah, oh, here we go, is a system that's designed not to be a work of art, but fundamentally uh, kind of a, a work uh, which uh, I'd say follows very closely this idea of a computational paradigm. Right. Now, the reason I bring this up right off the bat is because I'd like to make some oppositions uh, that I think could help locate, and I'll take the risk and I'll take, I'll, take, I'll take the criticism for it. But I would say that you know, the computational paradigm alone is probably not enough as an aesthetic basis for uh, imagining the conceptual work that's happening in a lot of new media and locative work. Uh, data in, in this model is really essentially given as a manipulative, a manipulable set of units for centralized and fixed perspective of the observer. But the observer, if we notice here, isn't really moved in any level to reflect on inner experience, for example. Uh, the, you know, there's always a separation between the state of what's being presented and the state of the observer. Uh, this is sort of what we might call, if you like, uh, the membranes of convenience. I'm not trying to be provocative, um, if you will. The idea that, you know, the, the aesthetic, one which I think aesthetic engagement seeks to somehow transcend, it's a difficult one. And so in this aim, uh, locative and other forms, I think, of electronic art are not for the informational or for the sensory, but rather for the emotive, ultimately, connection between physical and something beyond that. So as impressive as work like this is, I would sort of say that I would put it on one level in which the subjectivity is really rather unmoved in the end, though I do very much like this work. Um, so um, let, me, let me click on these guys. Now, I, I wanted to use works that are not completely new that a lot of people did for, uh, were familiar with because if I find that I'm looking also at a lot of things that no one knows, then um, it'd, be harder to, it'd be harder to find common ground in this, in this particular convergence. With the, with the earlier things like sculpture and architecture, not a problem. But here there's a lot of work in which I do think that we do need to sort of have something like um, an evolving canon, if possible. Now here, so, you know, since discovery, I think, is, is not a matter of manipulating these sort of discrete or, if you like, you know, uh, fixed units of, of meaning, um, creative expression has to turn, I think, to entirely new ways to defeat the idea of a center from which this kind of notion of uh, naive notion, I think, of stable meaning always arises. And this includes the projective engagement of one's presence onto uh, surfaces that, uh, in a way that, are, that is both fixed because the surfaces themselves are, are stationary um, and also variable because both the perspective and the product are altered by one's own position or behavior. Here's Rafael Lozano Hemmer's Sustained Coincidence, which kind of illustrates this confluence of fixity and variability in a single enclosed space. Um, enclosed spaces are sort of like the beginning, I think, uh, in which there's a lot of work that does actually incubate in here before it really essentially goes out. Um, let's have a look at another. Ah, yes. Uh, so I'll, everyone is probably familiar with um, Camille uh, Otterbach's uh, sort of liquid time series. Now, um, I would say here that using the, the, the technique of slit-scan photography, an example of which I show up at the top from uh, Muing Dong, um, I think uh, works like uh, uh, kind of uh, to, to make evident uh, that beyond the kind of wholeness of a complete experience, uh, partial temporal states can also be reproduced as if through a sort of chain 
of vantage points that never really fundamentally meet, um, endless viewpoints that never sort of integrate. In this particular work, what we actually see is um, as uh, users move left and right or forward and backward, they are not only affect the direction, but also the depth of recall of two specific moments that were filmed. And they're essentially the same moment, but one can actually go backward and forward. And some of these then show us this sort of this in-between state, which I alluded to somewhat earlier. Uh, so, you know, the, the, it determines in many ways not only the sort of the axial point of observation, but of sort of what we might call maybe momentary time as well. Um, in many ways, this is, I think, very interesting to someone like Virginia Woolf or even Marcel Proust, who were known for bracketing for momentary time, would stop there and would go into something for a long period of time before actually returning to the narrative time of the story. Um, so, and, but here's a sort of visual version of this. Another example recently shown at the Whitney Museum is Paul McCarthy. Now, likewise, uh, but transcending this, this sort of this two-dimensional conditions of a wall, um, a work that was designed much earlier, essentially in, in 1971, uh, Paul McCarthy's spinning room, only recently built at the Whitney Museum, creates an entire work in which the, enter, the complete center is fundamentally missing. It basically comprises only the presence of the visitors whose own images we can sort of see here are kind of played back on four screens that fade and degrade over time. And they evoke, of course, I think, maybe that sense of perception. Uh, and, uh, and the idea that perception itself, like being, you know, ha is often ephemeral and has a tendency to degrade. When I went to go see this, we weren't allowed to film. And uh, I took, uh, not this film, but I took another film and a camera and um, I filmed until I was caught. Uh, but it was, it was very interesting being in there. Um, the idea is not to stand there for one minute. If you can stand there for 20 minutes, you really have a whole series of very different new kinds of thoughts evoke uh, uh, come up. Now, uh, maybe I don't know, we need to make it you know, an amateur night for La Rafael Lozano Hemmer. It just so happens that there's some good examples here. Um, in a series of works that he, in fact, I think maybe provocatively calls um, relational architecture, Lozano Hammer's own projective piece called Underscan, you might have seen this work as well, it's very famous, brings to mind the sense that this juxtaposition of media over the built environment is often sort of meant to be sort of kind of provocative in some way. Like as opposed to the case of the enclosed installation, uh, in which things are controlled in a very specific, often two-dimensional manner. Work in outside spaces does have to use the architectural as the sort of basis for motion or for memory in the collective. Now, one of the things that uh, um, I would say that Lausanne Hammer is particularly good at is using very high-end equipment, uh, very high-end equipment, for generating um, experiences over built architecture. But I would say that one of the things that this work really is amenable to some critique about is that there is really very little in the way of actual reflection, either from the standpoint of what we might call the subjective entering the space, or really uh, an, a consciousness or an awareness of what it is that the built environment is there for in any real sense. Not that we actually have to be at the service of every historical reference, but fundamentally showing up in a space in which we sort of see something like this can eventually sort of degrade to the idea of, oh, it's very, been very fun. Three minutes later, it feels gimmicky. And, um, and uh, that, I think, doesn't serve some of the aesthetic goals that one wants to actually think. There's a lot of money that was put into the creation of this particular installation. And I think it didn't, uh, didn't deliver the same way. It's filmed very well. Now, uh, German artists are extraordinary. One of, one of the ones I've been sort of following for some years is Alexander Stublik uh, in Berlin. 
now, now, this idea of motion and memory in the collective, I think, is sometimes presented in very um, highly formalized terms, geometric terms, etc. Terms where the actual perspective can be really completely fictive, but, so, but nonetheless operates in a kind of tension against what we know to be the existing grid system of sort of the physical world. Now, there's a series of uh, projective works that follow this particular strategy, right? Um, like, but this one in particular is one of my favorites, Facade, in which, in which sort of a rectilinear projection was over a building, which itself is mostly curved, except in one or two very unusual places. And this juxtaposition brings us to see an entire edifice as a kind of object of perception by itself, that is, as separate, as it were, from the uh, background of the built environment into which it would otherwise blend. We'd probably just walk right by it and not even notice it. Now, I think that another, in addition to this sort of shift of perception, another reason for the success of our altered perception uh, of this kind of projective practice uh, is because it refutes the notion, again, of mass and of centrality. Uh, For here, we could uh, reconceive the structure as, in some ways, almost entirely devoid of its own materiality and its own centrality even. And our own reference system sort of undergoes continual shifts of, of perspective. And um, this, this is particularly interesting because uh, it is actually shown up against the Orkovetan building, which is what the, the central power station building and the headquarters of the power company in uh, Reykjavik, Island, uh, Iceland. And at that time, uh, it was seen as, well, you know, there was, there was some interest in this, but, uh, but fundamentally nothing more surreal than what has happened to Iceland's economy could be, <laughs> could be more appropriate than to actually put something like of oh, this nature, shifting realities onto a building whose, whose entire sort of economic structure has crumbled out from underneath it. Um, now, uh, one of the ideas behind the, the concept, or one of the strategies for deploying separation or, uh, as it were, if you like, um, distribution um, is by actually using the same story over, over several works which themselves are not together. So that here we have one sort of narratival possibility in what we're seeing, but in fact there are seven screens relatively large in Munich. Uh, this one's called uh, uh, Reprojected. And so this is really about the sort of, in my view, the interrogation in open space of sculptural and architectural. You know, it sort of follows a different kind of narrative uh, across a series of what are, to us, clearly uh, very aesthetic object types because they don't function in any specific way. They're there as sort of uh, xenon reflectors from inside. But... um, it doesn't necessarily have to be only aesthetic object types. It can be utilitarian object types as well that can be the basis of some of this projection. For example, in, on the occasion recently of the Copenhagen Climate Conference talks, uh, Alexander's firm was retained to make a statement about the central power plant seems to be drawn to power plant in, in, in Copenhagen. And the idea, I think, here was the, the, the notion that, you know, it's clear that there's a, a clearly a, not only a, a formal shift of perspective, but really a need to make reference to what the talks themselves are talking about, which fundamentally was really our uh, effect on the climate, in a manner that was symbolic as well as formal and somewhat critical, not only because this involved projections onto the power structures themselves, but bringing the idea of the power 
the use of power itself right down to the one site where this would normally not be reflected upon, namely where we uh, participate in the greatest amount of consumption of uh, hydrocarbons, and that is on the road itself. So these were actually a, a number of road, a number of trucks that were themselves uh, synchronized with signals that could also, and they tended to ride around the power plant, and that was a neat idea. So I think that. Um, I would like to say that you know these last couple of works that we looked at, uh, sometimes the work operates on its own or it sort of alters or prompts kind of human behavior and brings to mind a whole lot of questions discussed, I think, in architectural theory about whether, in fact, the highest function of architecture is to serve as a sort of passive medium or whether, conversely, you know, if form follows function, it's really, its role is really there to foster more active kinds of engagement in real space. And I would sort of say that, that it's rather, rather the quality of the engagement itself that can help us address questions like these. You know, uh, many works like Underscan, while, which we saw earlier, while they're essentially very playful, make little reference either to, as I say, the specific histories of the site on which they're deployed or the possibility of really some reflective memory. And I think it's hard to get away from the sort of ethical component, which uh, art is fundamentally always in some way or another sort of addressing. Um, but without, you know, sort of diving too much, as I say, into these sort of metaphysical waters, I would add that questions of personal meaning are enormously important to contemporary expression, regardless of, of the medium or, or the field. Um, and that notions like what personal meaning might represent can be amenable to definition along a line that might begin with what makes us more aware of things around us. So it's like a sort of per a perceptual pull, on the other hand, all the way maybe to a the other sort of humanistic end, which might culminate in an enduring sense of sort of empathy as we come to experience uh, and connect with, with others. So um, if I move on, you see some examples of this. Um, ah, yes, uh, beyond sort of, the, so the idea is to sort of, if we can, sort of also explore possibilities in which strict formalism can be escaped to give us a notion of what real experience is like. And this is fundamentally where a lot of locative media work has, has come. One of the earlier works was Terry Rube's The Choreography of Everyday Movement, which sort of basically collected a stream of, you know, sort of early walking around, as it were, because people were walking, uh, participants in this work of art, had GPS-enabled devices, which then recorded their meanderings. And these were actually uh, placed um, on an overlay of glass plates showing the many paths that had happened over the same space. So fundamentally, what was a very performative practice initially ends up in a kind of sculptural product at the end. Uh, this is very early, and there have been very m many versions of this that are somewhat more sophisticated, one of which is, of course, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be surprised, David Rockaby, with his obsessive, his obsessive interest um, in our Marco Flow, for example, uh, takes on a whole different version of this. Right? Rather than create a physical product at the end, he's doing the exact same thing using more animated techniques. As a, um, and that's not because he's Canadian. Um, he's also been interested in sort of the dynamics of, of sampling the real world as we can see here. And so here, what this is, is fundamentally, it's a flow of layers of all the motion that happens uh, for a period of time in the Piazza San Marco in Venice, right? Uh, as a sort of, uh, delivered to us as a sort of evolving collage, which is fundamentally a documentary of movement. The product really only documents animate objects, people, uh, pigeons, 
anything that moves and leaves traces. And this kind of amounts to an exposure of collective use in a place that has really no evident nucleus of activity because even though it's a central square, we know there's cafes on different sides and tourists and people walking all, all around. And I think also that earlier I did mention that there are sculptural and architectural electronic art might be seen as a sort of on a continuum between the physical report of activities uh, to a kind of envoy of, of inner experience. And following the tradition of the conceptual documentary, particularly maybe, for example, in the work of Sophie Kahl in the 1980s, a version of this in new media has spawned the tradition of what I would call the located documentary, in which the narratives are brought to sites so as to augment one's uh, physical location in a place with a sense of personal experience and meaning. And this is a case, uh, if you like, of sort of adding to the built environment uh, another sort of phenomenological architecture that shifts the viewpoint from the initial emphasis on place to a new emphasis on event. Uh, Examples of this work, for example, uh, which do not need to be very um, technologically um, advanced, are works like Murmur, uh, for example, he, this is a project in which uh, sort of neighborhood anecdotes can be heard in several Canadian cities. Here we go, Canadian. Uh, a set of locations are marked with special signs and telephone numbers so that anybody can call with a mobile number and listen to a story while actually standing in some of these marked places. And at the exact spot where certain things happen, they actually get a sense and, uh, of what sort of might have happened, might have taken place there. And some of the stories suggest that the listener sort of walk around, others that the listener walk through a certain path through another place. And this is sort of the basis for a lot of sort of games. In this particular case, it's, it was delivered with sort of the notion of personal, um, I guess, personal history. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't know if you can hear this. Let's try... Here's an example of two, two uh, let's see if we can hear them. Um, Hi, I'm Gordon Crimmel. I'm standing on Main Street. Just down the street there used to be the uh, CIDC, the Imperial Bank of Commerce. Back in 1973, there was a bank property there. And uh, we were supposed to go to Cubs that day, but uh, we were told at the school not to go. So I went home. I got a call from my mom saying just to stay inside. And I could hear all this action going on downtown, so I went to the window and looked outside and saw a helicopter. And I went away from the window. All of a sudden, I heard this huge explosion. And actually went back to the window, looked outside, and I could see all this debris in the air, including green things. And I found out later they were dollar bills. That's an interesting story. And so one, one of the things that Murmur does is it provides you another phone number, which when you call it, you actually get the radio broadcast itself of that day. Ladies and gentlemen, a continuing report on the attempted bank robbery at the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce on Main Street. Uh, we've spoken to a number of people on the street who allegedly saw this take place, and it uh, was just one smooth operation, walking into the bank, ordering the tellers out, and from there, nobody seems to know what's going on, because the man is holed up in the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. So we'll move on. But, you know, one gets a sense that, of course, you know, architecture in itself finds a complement in locative work in which place and events sort of come together. Um, Now, it isn't exactly always the idea of, you know, even though it's subjective, it isn't necessarily always the the case of documentation or factuality. Sometimes it can be quite fictive, as we know from the work of Janet Cardiff. She's very famous for her audio walks. And some of these are fascinating to me because I do think that, um, and as I think, I think a lot of other people, she's one of many of these sound artists whose projects kind of fuse this truth between the physical sensation on the one hand and fictive accounts and real sites on the other. 
kind of blurring the space of perception with that of imagination and creating a kind of uncanny state or uncanny sense that as we engage with our environs, we're almost ready to, almost about to feel perhaps some sort of second phantasmal reality sort of appear. And she does this very well. An example would be her, one actually walks through New York. This, this particular walk, uh, as many, comes with a specific map and a guide. And you know, It's not GPS-based. It's actually a recording. But, and I won't play the entire thing, but this is an example of what one actually feels could be happening in the real, in the real site, in the real place. Now there's peanut sellers and the squatters are doing tightrope walking. One line is drawn across between the trees. Do you hear that? They're shooting the scavengers for well pigs and pigs. They were supposed to eat the garbage in the city streets, but they keep coming into the park to eat the grass. Sad. And you can see the story goes on and on, but it really does begin with a sort of anchor in what we could call feasible or believable reality and sort of goes on from there. And, and in many ways, you know, um, if we really think about the theory of architecture and sculpture, that's really not so far because fundamentally structures are created not only for form-following function, but to really kind of evoke. Um, and so I don't think of this as inimical to the idea of what uh, design could really provide or intended to provide even on a historical basis at all, alone. Um, I would also say that, um, you know, um, even though artists like Janet Cardiff's work, uh, she clearly creates works that are not really located in any single metaphysical statement, but sort of straddling this sort of fictive space between reality and and, and physical space on the one hand, and sort of uh, an evoked sense or some sort of wistful uh, um, belief of of, of another world on on the other, um, there are worlds in which um, this same idea of sort of pseudo-documentation or real documentation is somewhat more feasibly believable. Probably the most famous these days, um, or one of the most famous, is uh, J.R. Carpenter's In Absentia. I've been to probably four conferences where it's been talked about over and over again. And fundamentally, what this work does is it sort of lies in a different discursive space. It's it's less fictive, but it's not entirely factual. Um, you know, we might say that's a sort of a geo-literary character to this work. Um, that is, it uses technologies of location, specifically the the Google Maps interface, uh, as the medium for narrating the experience of otherness and decentering. Um, J.R. Carpenter. Uh, who no longer lives in Montreal, but while she was a resident of a section in Montreal, uh, that section was undergoing some massive gentrification, and it undertook, she did, to keep a sort of a journal of how this urban transition kind of affected her own immediate surroundings, how it affected uh, the loss of these long, long-standing sort of social f- spheres that were very much a part of her life, and even how her own life under the continuous sort of vibration of heavy machinery even broke some of her uh, china. And so there it sort of is, is worth listening and worth writing about. In addition to which, it's been spawned into a, a book which was co-written with this and somewhat, somewhat um, overlapping. Um, there's another artist who's done the exact same thing, but I think in many ways somewhat more interestingly because if for no other reason, and perhaps I'm being trivial in thinking this, that um, as someone who has actually added more layers of media to this, and that's uh, Jan Ruthuysen, the, the sort of Dutch art, young Dutch artist, created the last tourist series, and there was last tourist in China and the last tourist in Cairo. 
And I think that this is visually slightly more involved. The work has been sort of repeated in, in uh, like as I say, various other cities. He's actually, I understand, working on a third one. Uh, this is essentially uh, the travel uh, of a tourist in a, in a city, uh, very unlike uh, his own Western sensibilities have allowed him to, to assume. Um, and, uh, you know, while uh, he basically keeps these t tourist journals, and while these tourist journals, on the one hand, as we know from, you know, our, our own experience of reading them, always have a sort of a particular, uh, very personal, rather subjective feel, uh, Reuthausen creates a sort of multiform collage of sort of the photographic, cartographic, and caricature, uh, which I think provide us with a kind of a map as much of the objective place on the one hand as of the subjective position of the visitor as, as artist and as maybe, if you like me, in flaneur. Um, now, all of these have been going from, as I say, if we can sort of see a line in some ways uh, allows us to sort of study or trace it, if you like, from what we might consider very formal sort of experiments, playful, etc., to ones in which there's a much greater degree of engagement of the artist. And, you know, one might think that fundamentally this covers the entire spectrum. But the piece that we're sort of not including in here, I think, and I think I, I leave the last work as a kind of example of this, is the piece of the sort of the visitor. Um, because it is possible for visitors also to experience through even low technology very transcendental experiences. Now, uh, so I mean, I would think that even though I, we've been talking about projection, because all of these works basically travel, all of these works have no identifiable sort of nexus or center in many ways, there is one final kind of pattern for pro such projected work, that, and that is, I think, maybe best described as a kind of a circle uh, back to itself. Now, um, it touches, I think, on the resuscitation of lived memory or affect in really poignant experience. Now, layering over existing architecture, one of the principal strategies we've seen in this, in this kind of art, um, I think really kind of acquires a new level of meaning when the architectural site happens to be very redolent in the first place, for instance, an abandoned mental hospital. It falls into the category of places that we would rather uh, forget um, or accept that there is really essentially much to re-experience in this. And now, the German artist, uh, she's actually German-American, Anna Schuleit, who for years resuscitated several such structures into installations, created in the year 2000 a work within the Northampton State Hospital here in Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts that brought, it to, brought to the work what it had never had, which is fundamentally music. Now, it's perhaps fitting, I think, that uh, structures uh, that we no longer look at would resonate with what it is that they never possessed as well. And so maybe on the occasion of the celebration of this kind of hospital, many sort of former professionals, family members of patients, patients themselves, etc., they returned sort of one last time to look on the site of so much personal experience and to see it turned into a sort of a musical instrument as, uh, as Shulite uh, had had it, uh, this very complex uh, speaker system installed in the building's uh, halls and rooms so as to play the last uh, movement of Bach's Magnificat. Let's see if this actually plays here.
Zion. I became interested in asylums years ago, back in my teens. I'm, I'm 38 now. I just have a few pieces from asylums and historic buildings. The keys, I've had this set 20 years. I've been through a lot. I've been, I've been through hell on earth. I've been in some of these uh, institutions myself. Just right uh, at the moment, due to a number of different factors, I'm just a resident of the United States at large. This whole thing is surreal. It's a combination of heaven and hell, the most extreme of emotions in terms of torture with what I've been through, and now the, 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 the glory, the, the transport to heaven of just being here for this unreal event. There it is. This is only the second time I've seen it. I didn't see it the other morning when I mentioned it.
Do you want to hear the rest of it? Or? All right, I'll move along. It's a, it's a very meditative... Uh, it's very powerful. So in any case, I think I'd like to just sort of bring some conclusions. I'm not sure if they're conclusions. Maybe I'm bringing the talk to a conclusion, perhaps an overdue conclusion. Because um, I think that there's fundamentally, uh, you know, there's something about this kind of practice that I think is very, very um, unusual, which is that it already, after certain res- revolutions that we've seen in sculpture and architecture and you know, kinds of art, we're sort of seeing a revolution of a kind of an engagement in, in a way that we've never seen before. And I think that this is very amenable to a kind of uh, a reflective state of being that I think is, is, is the ethical responsibility of us to sort of study. Because uh, even though we're living in a kind of a postmodern decenteredness of the work, I think that the, the, the sort of, uh, it's pretty clear that there are these sort of narratives in here and that there are adequate structures for the right audience. And in many ways, what we're, I think, looking at is uh, the ways in which these experiences sort of fit together. And I think that's very much in the sort of the charter, the portfolio of the sort of the new media sort of scholar. And I think it's creative sort of territory, but it's also uh, territory for scholarly inquiry and something that allows us to go from the formal, as I say, maybe to the empathic all along, which is part of what allows us to think in sort of humanistic and technological terms. And so I also think that perhaps maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but it uh, could be that the biggest challenge to a lot of aesthetic and media studies is finding sort of meaning, ultimately, in a world in which, you know, as David Riesman and uh, Nathan Glazer sort of said, that we're at home everywhere and nowhere are capable of superficial intimacy with and, and response to, to everyone. So um, I think uh, there are a lot of questions and there's a lot of terrain for us to cover. Uh, thanks very much. Any questions? I can start with a question, if I can make my point. So, one of the things that had me worried when we, you were talking about architecture is that you were showing all these spaces from outside. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, uh, you've closed with the experience of space and experiencing space, and still outside in, in that example that you right. gave. Um, do you think that there's, um, that there's an influence in, in architecture uh, where playing with the space or, the, you know, creating space with, uh, digital tools, for example, is kind of losing that experience. And I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Marcus Novak, uh, where he's talking about liquid, liquid architecture, and he's talking about all these possibilities that we have, but he forgets about the experience of the space, of what it is to be in the space. He's talking about spaces, but never... I, I find it very difficult to understand architectural space without being in it and what it is for. Well, I mean, this gets to a very big argument in architectural theory. I mean, I think Ada Huxtable would agree with you completely, in which, for example, she sees parsimonious design as being super important. And so she thinks of the work of people who have extras in there, like Zaha Hadid or Santiago Calatrava, as doing so much more than they ever really need to do. And and largely, uh, this comes at the expense of what the experience is with the space itself. 
um, I do think that you, that you're right about this. Um, and I was I was really looking a lot. It's a really good question. A lot about uh, space itself from the outside, because from the inside we still have to sort of walk in and we still have to walk and deal with. In fact, I don't think that uh, the being inside has really changed, except for air conditioning and lighting. Our experience of being in enclosed spaces hasn't changed entirely that much. You know. More questions? Uh, I'm curious about the internal space concept and the way in which uh, a lot of the things you've shown uh, invite the feeling and the emotion of being inside. Uh, and once being inside, not seeing, you know, finding a central mass. Uh, and that sense of dispersal. And I'm, uh, you seem to touch on it in a few places in uh, the digital world of being inside the digital space itself. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, you're, if, if you see a connection between this aesthetic that you've been tracking here and the movement, the massive movement into the internal world of digital space and so on, and whether you could make any remarks on that. Right. This is, this is the whole lecture. I couldn't even fit it in here. But, yeah, it's absolutely right. The, um, the examples, for instance, of what we see, I think, most radically uh, deployed in Second Life uh, show not only that there is a whole kind of a, a overturning of a series of physical constraints that, of course, we would imagine. So, for example, things that are very heavy seem to be as if, you know, gravity doesn't affect them. And we have work in people like Alan Sondheim who show themselves walking through walls and that kind of thing. But... Fundamentally, I think that there's a, there's a very important sort of uh, extremism at work there that I think speaks to, in many ways, where we're sort of coming with here, which is that um, not only is it uh, a, an alteration of perspective so that we can actually see ourselves from different viewpoints and see our, find ourselves in different spaces, but what actually has happened in digital space is the addition of another change, which is the, the, the sort of the transcendence not only of perspective but of orientation. And I find that to be very interesting, you know, going through inside-out uh, spaces, being ourselves sort of inside-out, upside-down, that you know, and, and finding oneself. I have tons of these things to show, but they're, like, really interesting, which is what is it that motivates someone to design a space in which orientation itself needs to be so radically refuted? And, and I do think that in large part it's somehow, you know, it's, it's, we're uncomfortable somehow with with where we are, and to the degree that we need to seek these really strange, uncanny experiences. They're like phantasmagorical. Some of these things are really unusual. And, and there's a mythological component that comes along with that, and I find that very interesting, too, because a lot of mythology also is very full of a lot of these really interesting stories of individual transformation in and around space, flying, etc. So I find that very fascinating. There's, 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 I, I wish in some ways that Freud or Jung were still alive today so that they could sort of write about it from at least their perspective. But I think that's, um, it's an extension that is in many ways sort of, you know, maybe even one more radical step of removing there. Um, and, and I didn't actually consider that because um, I felt that there were conditions that are imposed by a lot of these uh, environments that make it impossible for a lot of people to participate in them, right? So, you know, you, not everybody can just sort of push a button and suddenly you're inside Second Life, you have to go through a certain process, or certain games, et cetera, you have to go through, you know, the rules of engagement to sort of get in them. 
And I do think that, uh, you know, the sort of the, the, the interface is going away where we actually are becoming more, you know, able to penetrate sort of this membrane of sort of real world, virtual world, and this like really virtual world, right? Uh, but, but, uh, but I noticed that, for example, uh, artists and, and architects are not discussing that at all right now. And, I, and I'd like to almost imagine why I'd love to engage with them in this process, you know? Yeah. I kind of find myself wondering if there's a, if there are easier explanations for some of these things, though. I mean, a lot of what's going on, especially in digital media, is someone's motivated to do something that hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. And the easy way to do that is, one easy way to do that would be to create a space that no one's seen before or, or what have you. Um, is it necessarily a reaction to what's come before or just something different than everything that's been come before? Um, yeah, or, or is it both? That's actually a good, you know? <laughs> Yeah, because I think that uh, sort of in the, the lexicon of digital media creations, there's probably a lot of space for both of those. And some people are very decidedly sort of in an against mode. And some are sort of in a more synthetic, put together with some mode. And some are just very inventive. You know, like I think, for example, to, to evoke again the authority of the name of someone like Alan Sondheim, right? Um, I don't think that his work is against anything, but it's radically different. I mean, it can relate to absolutely nothing else except for the fact that he has a very poetic, right brain imagination. And so his notions of spatiality are very strange. You know, I mean, he mentions ontologies that other people don't necessarily think about. But, uh, but I do think that, you know, in many ways he's playing the space as if it were an instrument, right? So I think, wow, can one have, like, you know, ludic distortion? I think so, you know? Um, now, as to whether it's a, it is the prevalent pattern, what's happening at this time, um, I think it's probably a, an interesting question. I've just found some of these, uh, you know, sort of maybe I'm in the mainstream, you know? But these are out there for sure. And maybe you're right. Maybe there are simpler explanations than what I've provided. Hopefully not too tedious ones or mine. Um, Excuse me. I'm looking at your last bullet point there, and it says the biggest challenge to aesthetics and media studies together is finding meaning in a world um, where we're at home everywhere, et cetera. And I'm wondering... um, I guess I'm looking at that, and I'm I'm just thinking like maybe 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 I'm wondering if the concept of finding meaning and having to look at look for meaning itself assumes a center, right? Like maybe meaning finds you, or mm-hmm. like maybe finding meaning at all is a right. modern concept and not a postmodern concept. I, I agree with you. Yeah, I'm wondering I, if you could speak about that. No, I agree with you, except that um, I, I I actually thought about this. Except the problem is this, which is what about the world of of reverie of of memory, of recall, the dream world, right? Now, we can find a lot of meaning in those, even if we don't necessarily understand them. But I don't know, my dreams don't necessarily, for instance, or even Robert Rauschenberg's dreams, I would even dare to say, uh, they don't necessarily follow a sort of a very centrist or a very sort of well-ordered world. But they seem somehow that, you know, in their fragmentary nature, they sort of are giving us something back. By the way, I'm, I knew that. I knew that at a place like MIT, putting a superlative like that would be just like the red herring, you know. So I was like, I figure, well, you know, if, if anyone's still awake by the time I finish this, let's say, you know, here's the th- third rail, step on it and hit me. Yeah, uh, but I do think that, you know, there is so much there that uh, meaning, in my view, I, in perhaps, you know, like for instance, uh, another example is, like, you know, um, Native American meaning does involve a sort of vital center, right? The sort of the idea of the kiva or the idea that the world is itself a world in which we operate with a sort of meaning because, you know, when, when, when the natives sort of die, 
and they, they sort of become the clouds which then come back and then they rain and then we have corn and corn is fertility so there's like the circle and we're sort of in the middle of the circle this great circle of being um, but yet you know so many of their own sort of symbologies are not at all in, uh, amenable to kind of Aristotelian reading they themselves don't understand so they're willing to live in a world in which there's this sort of notion of order but much of the order in which they themselves believe is not an order that we can by any uh, anthropological standard sort of say has a kind of a centrist narrative in many ways there are things that are just mysteries and they're very happy to live with the mysteries right so I, I wondered very much about that what it is what does it mean to sort of find meaning and does one find meaning by just finding memory for example or does one find meaning by, you know this is a great question for the age Right, so it's like maybe we can, you know. But what I wanted to sort of say with this is sort of stave off, if 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 I could, um, sort of any potential discussion of sort of new media as a kind of Hollywood, uh, a world, a playground of sort of technological uh, possibility in which if we design things that are very interesting, fundamentally they'll be sold, they'll be used, they'll be, you know, and there's a kind of entertainment concept in this that gives a superficiality that I think we somehow are a little bit suspicious of, you know? I know that, you know, there's a, there's a general sense of anxiety out there, you know? And, and artists that I work with, and, and I'm sure that you know as well, Matt, they're people who, um, and writers as well, who are sort of looking to go beyond that and create things that somehow engage in a deep kind of way. So perhaps the use of the word meaning was maybe entirely too continental. But I'm looking for, see if you can help me sort of think of some way of sort of saying there's something at stake here beyond what the, you know, something beyond the physical, something beyond the instrumental is true. And, and that motivates a lot of this work. Um, you know, the, it's, the, we did go through a very secular, atheistic period in the creation of architecture, but I think that architecture is no longer in that space. A lot of architecture, to give one example, you know, even though it serves very, a very... Um, very complicated plethora of commercial and political interests, nonetheless is is rife with examples of people who want to create something that gives somebody a sense of being somewhere. I'm thinking of the work of Zaha, Zaha Hadid or Daniel Liebskin. You know, now we may disagree with the way that they design, but spaces themselves seem to still be somewhat, I mean, they're like ultimately the, the like the optimistic venues where one actually could, you know, if you go somewhere and you don't feel anything, you leave, somehow the architect has seemed to have failed, and we, we have a lot of examples like this. Um, and I think of architecture as this because it's, it's, a, it's one of those things that still is relatively low-tech in many ways. I mean, there's high-tech systems behind the walls, but fundamentally the, the notion of being in an enclosed space, right, is, I think, an extension to uh, the, the notion of creating event and expressive being. I'm very interested in that, you know. Uh, as much in, uh, in my head as I am, or maybe we all are, so, you know. I really enjoyed the talk, and it got my mind moving in a lot of different directions. Um, and one of them was the notion of um, external architectural spaces, because you mentioned that the literary model has been very useful for you, and there's this history in literature of looking at architectural facades as a model of the human mind. So a character in a Victorian novel will come upon a, a beautiful building and it's like, oh, it reminds me of this elegant man who lives there and clearly I'm in love with him, etc. Um, so I'm interested in the way the literary model of architecture and the human mind might be progressing through that. Uh, you gave sort of a wonderful chronology of how 
uh, in the visual arts and in architecture. It's a progression, and I'm curious how um, concepts of self or of mind might be related to what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, one of the places in which I think, um, I'm not sure if I'll answer it too obliquely, but one of the places in which I saw a lot of this happening, in, again, I'm, you know, sort of like, I don't know why we sort of, uh, we're on the architecture paragraph suddenly, but it's very interesting that, that uh, one of the places where I saw a lot of this sort of happening was in German architecture around the war. Uh, it turns out that a lot of German architects around the reconstruction after the war were extremely heavily involved, very heavily involved, with a lot of writers, so that there, it would be possible to, and even before, so you would have you know, conversations between Heinrich Böll and maybe Adolf Loos or somebody, and there was all of this very interesting view that, in a way that I, I've never seen before, really, or, or almost since, with the exception, perhaps, again, of Daniel Liebskind in modern times, uh, that that there's a kind of a narratival architecture, right? And and architecture historians and theorists have written about this as almost the holy grail. In other words, if the story can be somehow, um, if the story for which the function of the building or the structure itself can be can be uh, embodied or felt, then the highest purpose of the architectural environment will have been uh, served. And that seems to me to say that there's more than a general function. There's actually, in other words, we come in, we come to a room, what's the room for? The room is for learning. But there's also this idea of transformation, right? So that even though um, we could sort of say that a room like this could be designed for learning, fundamentally, I think it'd be hard to argue that it wasn't designed with some idealistic model in mind where someone would say, you know, let's make it the, in a, a place in which, you know, there's, there's a way in which the spirit, the human spirit kind of really grows and can be nourished by the affordances of the environment uh, beyond the perceptual, right? And so um, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm being too metaphysical. But I do agree that, you know, that... Um, that this has been very interesting to a lot of architects. I mean, Daniel Liebskind is the example I think of because he, uh, in particular, um, uh, made much right, of, of his design of the, of the Jewish Museum in Berlin so that it's zigzag pattern, which, again, is one of the, I mean, maybe, if you like, hallmark, hallmark uh, designs of a very non-centrist, you know, I mean, he could have created a sort of a block structure. Uh, was created in in his own sort of uh, sort of writing uh, according to a certain narrative of rules, which some of which have been uh, negated. But fundamentally, they tra- the, the the design of the building is uh, supposed to be a sort of a car- cartographic reflection of some of the Jewish settlements throughout the city, and so it was actually traced in this manner. And the entire structure, which has a kind of a Germanist expressionist strangeness to it, because one can actually go up the stairs and turn, and suddenly there's an enormous corner leading nowhere, is also there to evoke a sense of the otherness, the uncanny, the non-belonging that he felt we really should sort of take away from our experience of that space. It wasn't just there to hang work. It's there for us to have this sort of spirit. And, um, you know... I'm wondering about this very much. I mean, institutional architecture is one of those in which, you know, going back to perhaps Michel Foucault, we have an extraordinary um, document, well-documented record of this, right? The panopticon, the idea of, you know, does that actually create 
um, the state? Does that actually create the idea of discipline and punish, etc.? You know, so the reality itself is that when we are in a space, we uh, we do you know decorate our homes and we decorate our world with a very specific need to see some a reflection from the inside coming out. I don't know why I'm psychologizing this so much. I, I really wish I could express this in a slightly different way than that. But I do think that the literary experience does more, almost more than anything in this because it's so evocative. It's, it's a grasp of the elusive and the allusive is so clear in a way that, for example, and I, I work in an art school, you know, but in a way that like conceptual art doesn't do. Conceptual art is extraordinarily metaphorical, but it does require it does require a kind of a commitment both to the recent history of contemporary art on the one hand, so you know to follow some of the themes, etc, as well as some degree of knowledge and willingness to go through some of these structures and to some of these works and sort of sort of say, "Oh yeah, I, I kind of get it because a lot of times people don't get it, you know, and it's gotten to a point where now it's kind of in many ways kind of indistinguishable from the ego of the artist, you know? So, like, what exactly are we really feeling in Tracy Eamon's installations or maybe in Olaf Eliasson's sort of enormous rooms and that kind of thing? I'm not sure what we're sort of there for. I know that it says a lot about the artist, you know? Um, and I think the literary experience, to tell you the truth, doesn't really let us get away from that. Hey. Francisco, there were a lot of, uh, I had a lot of specific uh, thoughts about particular works, architects, artists, and so I'll just pick uh, one of these to ask about. Um, I was thinking that, you know, <clears throat> one of the um, interesting directions that postmodern architecture has gone is um, that that's uh, indicated by, you know, Venturi Scott Brown. Right. And particularly when you, when you mention Prince Charles, because... You know, Venturi Scott Brown gets the approval of Prince Charles. Yes, enough. absolutely. And it's not really an architecture that's involved with that same denial of volume or displacement of the center. No, it's absolutely uh, The types of things that we think about are, you know, um, emphasis of uh, facade, mm-hmm. uh, just explicit uh, and direct use of signage, things like this. I'm wondering how that, uh, how it, that impulse connects to... Um, the other one that you're looking here at here, if there's anything that, um, if that's a different uh, vector, a different direction, or um, if there's some way that it ties into the connection between architecture, sculpture, and new media that you've discussed. Oh, what a good question. Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you asked. Um, I think that um, the, the, the idea of, of taking architecture as a body, as a work of fundamentally there to serve the, the program of signification, right? A, for Venturi and Scott Brown, right? Learning from Las Vegas is essentially building around uh, an architecture which doesn't have volume, doesn't have history. Uh, it doesn't have necessarily a center or a lack of a center. Fundamentally, it's there for signification. It's all there for what we can read. It's a legible object in many ways, and that object has a, a kind of a, you know, if you like, maybe a culture industry agenda. Uh, and they go through... Uh, a bit of trouble to not be too, you know, normative about this. So they, you know, they literally drop certain red herrings there as well, and they don't, they don't, um, they don't have problems with this, you know. And of course, that infuriates many other people because fundamentally, they also feel that there's an architectural program that has a kind of a social ethic that it needs to sort of observe and conform to. Um, this is, you know, not at all where Venturi Scott Brown come from, which basically say, well, you know, wait a minute, you know. Um, 
what if we embrace, what if we come to the dark side? Just, just let it happen. And there's a sort of organicity there, you know. Um, and I think that's actually very, uh, very much uh, the reason that uh, learning from Las Vegas, more than any other book, is fundamentally the first chapter in postmodern architecture. There's no question about it. The degree to which, however, their program has bifurcated into the plethora of sort of architectural theory on the one hand, because it has really been probably the most cited work in the last 50 years in architecture, on the one hand. And the dearth or the paucity of influence that it has had in actual built architecture is, for me, fascinating. It's fascinating. Because when we turn around and we look at what it is that Venturi and Scott Brown were looking at, we're mentioning and we're proposing in relationship to actual built structure, the example that everybody always turns to is Philip Johnson's AT&T building and very few others. So that when we look at Frank Gehry and when we look at a lot of these other works, they don't necessarily say that they came from Venturi and Scott Brown. They're not really there for any of that purpose. And, you know, the reason that they refute the cube is for their own sort of reasons of sort of wanting to use space in a sort of very, uh, in, a, in a program of their own sort of vernacular practice, their own voice, right? It seems to make sense. But I wonder why that's the case. Um, and, we, and the reason I say this is because, you know, um, I know that no one will write a novel based on what literary theorists wrote initially, right? But literary theory and literature have always been relatively close. But this is a signal example of where architectural theory and architecture really did go very different ways. One went on Highway 9, the other went on Highway 12. You know? And, um, and the, no architect that I can think of, no architect, actually says, I built this because I was really very influenced by Venturi and Scott Brown. No architect, not one. They, they all very decisively sort of say against this, you know. And, and it could also very much be that if, you know, you want to create a high-rise version of the decorated shed, you might have trouble with the developer. But it's a really good question. I thought of it, too, yeah. Fascinating. No more questions? So, well, let's thank Francisco yet again. Thank you. Thank you.